welcome back to another episode of Mesoamerican Studies On Air. I'm your host, Catherine Knuckles-Wild, and I am super excited today to be bringing you an interview with the two founders of the Instagram page, Ancient Maya History, Marie Botset and Dimitris Marquianos. Marie Botset did her Bachelor's in Anthropology of the Americas and Philosophy in Bonn and Paris, and is currently doing her Master's in Anthropology of the Americas, also in Bonn. She currently works as a research assistant in the text database and dictionary of Classic Mayan Project. Dimitris Marquianos studied archaeology at University College London and just completed his master's at the University of Bonn, where he studied anthropology of the Americas. He has participated in excavation projects and has briefly worked at the text database and dictionary of Classic Mayan Project as a research assistant. I have absolutely loved interacting with Marie and, D- and Dimitris, not only through Instagram, but also at academic conferences together. And I was so happy to be able to sit down and discuss both their research individually and collectively the work that they've been doing on their Instagram page. If you haven't checked it out yet, definitely check out Ancient Maya History on Instagram. They're doing great work and the stuff that they do is just really accessible and we'll talk about it a lot in this interview. But I hope you enjoy listening to this interview as much as I enjoyed talking with them. And so let's just dive right on in. Thank you again so much for taking the time to do this. I know that between your schedules and my schedules, it's been such a chaotic uh, time for all of us getting everything ready, but I really do want to thank you for taking the time to come here and chat with me. Um, I want to talk to each of you individually about the research that you're doing as scholars and then talk to you together about the work that you've been doing um, in social media and just with your online presence with your ancient Maya history account that I think is really doing important things um, and just working to, to create more public engagement, which I think is something that's obviously very important to me. And I, I love seeing scholars and finding scholars who also consider that important. Um, so let's dive in really quick. I'd, I'd love to talk to you, uh, Dimitris, about your recent thesis work, the, the things that you found through your research. Um, so why don't you tell us a little bit about what your thesis is for people who have no idea what you're working on? Right. So um, <laughs> for my master's thesis, I investigated a fairly well-known glyph uh, we, we see in the classic Maya hieroglyphic script. It's known in popular circles as the Star Wars glyph. And it's a very, well, let's say controversial topic. Um, it's been, there's, there's been a um, strong debate for several decades, I think, I think since the 70s, of what it could mean, the possible astronomical significance it may have, and just a bunch of other topics. And I was surprised to see that no one had ever conducted a full-on, com- complete, investigation of all the occurrences of all the contexts we see this glyph in. And so I thought at the time I had no idea what, what I was getting myself into. <laughs> it was probably not the wisest choice, but I stuck with it. And um, yeah, so I, that was my attempt at providing a, a, an overview of what we know and then try to come to new conclusions and see where we can go from there. 
Absolutely. And I think that I, I was really excited when I heard that this was the topic of your thesis, because it's been one of those things for me as well, you know, going back to, I think the earliest that I've seen is, is some of Linda Sheely's work, um, where she, she talks about the Star Wars glyph. And for me, it's always been like, oh, gosh, I wish we knew more about that. But of course, I've never done the work. So I'm really <laughs> glad that you have. <laughs> um, I will put a picture of the glyph on the blog post that goes along with this, but can you describe a little bit about like what it looks like and how people? Yeah, so um, <clears throat> the most well-known, uh, I guess, appearance, because now in my epigraphy, I think in some circles, we distinguish between a sign and its graphs. Mm -hmm. uh, the, the sign being, well, the reading and the totality of the, the hieroglyph itself. And then the, the graphs is more like the visual representation of it or what we, what we see essentially. And one of the graphs I think, which I think in my opinion is the most complete version of the hieroglyph is a star that appears over the earth sign. And on both sides, there's water or some kind of fluid that's raining on the earth. Uh, there's different ways that we can see this represented. Um, the water can be, comprised of water stacks that we see in my iconography. So it could be interpreted as strong water currents or strong rain or something like this. And yeah, this is the most popular, this is the image that everyone thinks about. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it, it's definitely one of those ones that just pops up frequently when people are talking about the, this graph, right? And it's, I think so much of it has been, uh, so much of what we know about it is based off of the way it looks. Yes. Uh, yeah. So why don't you tell me a little bit about what your research process was like, um, some of the difficulties that you found, especially with working with such a glyph that is so popular in the sense that for 50 years, people have known what it is, but not really what it does. And I, I'm sure there's a lot of mythology and folklore behind it as well. Yeah, yeah. The, the mythology is kind of a more of a new thing now. The people seem to be connecting it to actual mythological narratives, but that is also up for debate. But generally, what I try to do is, from the beginning, I try to find, to look for every single occurrence of the glyph, every and every single would-be occurrence, and then sort of go through them and try to isolate which ones can, we can call um, Star Wars occurrences. So confirmed occurrences. Once I had all of these uh, gathered, then I try to go th through the context and see, in, try to isolate what kind of thematic context do we see this glyph in. And once I got through those, I try to investigate every single context uh, in order to, I guess, isolate and narrow down its meanings. Because we see it in several con contexts, most, most people, think of it as a, a war glyph mm -hmm. and it's kind of true I, I would say it's not a war glyph it's a glyph that is used in war in martial records mm. but it's also used in contexts where it has nothing to do with warfare so those are I think some one of the most interesting occurrences as well but essentially by trying to identify all the thematic areas of this glyph I tried to to provide a the most complete picture that we can get. 
Right. And I think those occurrences that you mentioned where it's not necessarily a war context are really important, right? Especially when we call the glyph the star war glyph. And so the fact that you've been able to to whittle out these differences is really useful. Um, So I I think that there's probably going to be some questions about why we call it a star war glyph, um, but we don't have a phonetic reading for it, right? We have no phonetic reading for it. We have no syllabic spelling for it. And we have no phonetic complements that are legible. So it's kind of all up in the air right now. There have been several reading proposals over the years. Lots of them, actually. Um, some of them, I think, look promising. Others, not so much. I, I, I may also provide an alternative hypothesis with regards to the reading, but I'm, I'm not sure how much I can say now. Right. But, in terms of the, the name, uh, in, in the beginning, so if, if we go back further, so in the 60s or the 70s, back then, people were mostly, well, my decipherment was still in its infancy, so we couldn't really account for historical context. And a lot of the discussions that were taking place mostly had to do with astronomy. And because this star elements, essentially this star elements defined a lot of the research that we saw in the decades that followed. So first it was considered as a glyph that had to do with the planet Venus. And then in the eighties and late seventies, people realized it's also used in contexts that have to do with warfare. And then some people tried to reconcile these two areas and came up with a celestially sanctioned warfare. So warfare that, that had to do with the movement of celestial bodies and stuff like that. I think it was Linda Sheely who came up with this term, the Star War glyph. I believe um, I mean, it's a catchy name. <laughs> I like she it. She's good at catchy but names. <laughs> some, some people don't like it. Uh, other people call it the Star Over Shell glyph or the Star Over Earth. Uh, I just kept it as Star because everyone knows it. Right. As <laughs> under that name. So it's uh, fruitless to. Try to, try to change it now. Yes, yeah. I, I think the, the best time to change it will be once we have uh, a good phonetic reading. Um, as we've seen with other glyphs, right? Particularly those named by Linda Sheely. Uh, a lot of those names, for better or for worse, stick around. Um, and I think that the phonetic readings are what's going to be what really helps us to let go of those names. And so, some of these nicknames stick for a long time. I remember... Thompson, he called uh, what was it? Uh, the toothache glyph when it's a figure with a, a band that goes around the, the jaw and he called it the toothache glyph. That was yes. <laughs> some fun nicknames. Right, yeah, yeah. There, there's so many of them that were that stick around and hang out in the literature. Um, but yeah, I think it's going to be really great. I'm really excited and I think everyone else listening will be excited too when you finally get around to, to putting out your, your hypothesis. Um, I'm curious what what conclusions I, I know from from personal experience that uh, studies like this can it's, it can be hard to come to a conclusion right for something something this big but I'm curious what conclusions if any have you been able to come to um, that you feel comfortable sharing what are your your next steps for the future or next steps that you think other scholars should undertake if I were to summarize in a few sentences I would say this is uh a logogram that is used in, that is primarily used in warfare contexts. 
it describes, I think everyone agrees on this, it describes a certain downward motion. And it also takes on prepositions in some cases, which might indicate some directionality, we don't know yet. And the, the graphs themselves, they seem to allude to storms or this is quite poetic. Some people call them a celestial storm, star storms or whatever. There's, there's, a, there's, a, there's a, a very nice scene published, a ceramic scene published by Mark Zender. It's called the Star War Vase. And it's a very well-known scene. I think most people, but, uh, most people know of the Tikal Bones, um, the MT38 series, where there's the very nice scene of the, the maze god, and he's got several animals in his canoe, and they're sinking, and they're all lamenting. And so it's this very scene, but this time we see a giant star over the canoe, and there's rain falling everywhere, and the waters are, seem to be choppy waters, and we know how the story ends, essentially. But this kind of scene sort of confirms earlier suspicions that this has to do, this might be associated with storms, deluges, and heavy um, meteorological phenomena. And one other thing that I noticed, this is, this is tentative, but this, is, this was kind of one of my ideas. It may also be used in, might also be used in topographic references. So describing features of the landscape. We only, we only have one or two occurrences that might qualify as this. Um, so this is quite new, but uh, I think we have some indications that this might be the case. And what else? What other conclusions can I go into? The, the syntax of the sign is not entirely clear, but we can see from the suffixes used what kind of verb we are looking at. Uh, in terms of the verb root and the um, any kind of temporal dixis that we see in different occurrences, this is up for debate. So, what, what the what the graphs may represent as well could be related to the underworld or underworld contexts mm. and mythological phenomena. There are some people who think that this the whole graph um, depiction might allude to specific myths. Mm. Um, this is also very tentative, but there are some interesting connections right there. Yeah, yeah, I think that's fascinating. And there's there's a lot that can be gained from these studies that focus on one particular glyph, right? Because you can, you can see so much from different contexts, um, not only in the text, but also in imagery, like you've mentioned with the, the Star Wars base, that um, I think really helps shed a lot of light on phrases or, or, or graphs like this that are still very much uh, left with a question mark in the literature. A lot of it is left with a question mark. Some of it can be very unsatisfying sometimes. Yes. <laughs> so I know that you have a lot coming up personally, um, but just uh, for your your uh, more immediate future or, or your uh, your scholarly future. What what would you like to move on to next? What what is what are those next projects that are that are kind of in your mind or things that you'd be interested in, in investigating more deeply? Well, I like to do this thing where I move on to something completely different, <laughs> which might be good or bad. I mean, I think both. 
so my bachelor thesis, I did something completely different. And for, uh, I don't know, future investigations, I do have some ideas that, would, that I would like to uh, investigate. I, I've been becoming more and more interested in the early classic or pre-classic uh, written sources. But as of now, I'm not very sure. <laughs> <laughs> There's definitely a lot of material. But I, I think, so I've, I've done a bit of that bouncing around as well. My, my bachelor's thesis was um, on like the Teotihuacan Maya connections of the late classic. My master's thesis was on the pre-classic along the Pacific coast. And now my dissertation is going to be, um, you know, on on uh, full figure inscriptions in the also in the late classic. And so I, I think bouncing around is really helpful because it gives you different perspectives to look at things from. Yeah, yeah. it's more exciting as well, moving yeah. on to something new. Yeah, that's great. Well, thank you so much. I, I'm sure people will have questions um, that I can forward on to you. Um, is there, for those people who might have questions, is there a way that they can get in touch with you or maybe follow some of your work as you as you move forward? Well, they can find us on our Instagram page or they can send me an email, I guess. Perfect. Excellent. Yeah. And I'll, on the, on the page associated with this podcast episode, I'll be sure to leave links to those, to those as well so they can get in touch if they're interested. As I mentioned uh, earlier, uh, in, in the, the next few months, I might not be entirely available, but I'll try to be. Yeah, yeah, no worries at all. Thank you so much. I, I really enjoyed hearing more about your research. Thank you. So now we're going to talk a little bit with, uh, with Marie about the work that she's been doing. Um, so welcome also, Marie. Would you like to give us a brief introduction to some of the research that you've been doing? Uh, thank you again for having us. It's an honor. <laughs> um, so I've been doing two things um, for the past month. So I, for my bachelor thesis, I um, wrote about the inverted vase title. I don't know, maybe some of your listeners will know it already. It's, um, it's um, uh, I, I guess, probably a logogram, so a word sign that consists of an inverted vase um, with a in, so like um, an infix for day or sun or hot. I think probably hot in this case. And um, yeah, it frequently appears in the name phrases of noble women throughout the classic period. So early, uh, some early and late class, mostly late classic examples. I think that's really, I think that's really interesting. I, I actually, back from like quite a few years ago, I did like a little drawing of, of a, a, a royal Maya woman's title before I knew anything really about what the glyphs meant. And after you mentioned what your title was or what your project was about, I realized, oh my gosh, there's the inverted base title right there. I had never like put it together. <laughs> um, but so I guess what, what does this research process look like for you? I started just collecting all of the occurrences of the, um, where the title appears, and then I started to look at what, um, in what different ways that it can appear, so what phonetic complements it can have, for example, so usually it has a la phonetic complement. It, it can be a phonetic complement or a grammatical suffix, but I think it's probably a phonetic complement. Um, yeah, and then I also looked in what position inside of the name phrases it appears, and it usually appears in the initial position directly after the verb, usually something like ubach ubuntan, so the, the cherished one of um, someone else. So, I mean, women names often appear in, um, like in relationship to other people in text, of course, not always, but um, yeah, in, in this case, many times. And um, yeah, so after that, I tried to do like a slot analysis to see um, the different versions of the title. 
and it can, it can appear in many different versions. So usually it's the inverted vase followed by Kruk for, for goddess in this case. And um, yeah, then after that, it's followed by the personal name of the woman. Okay, yeah. So what, I think, what has been one of the, the biggest takeaways for you from this project as you've been working on it? Ooh, that's a good question. <laughs> <laughs> or maybe what has been, what's been one of the hardest things as well? I think the entire process has been super hard because it was my bachelor's thesis and I, I think it was a bit too complicated for a bachelor's thesis, I guess, because there's no, no full phonetic complementation, which is always a problem if you want to try to decipher a logogram. Mm -hmm. And um, in this case, I've, I've tried to do so many statistical analysis of this, trying to find out if there's any pattern to when the this title uh, occurs or when it doesn't occur and I couldn't find anything. Some people have been referring to it as a female spouse indicator, but I, I, I think it's not. And there's also no pattern concerning the age of the women or whether they've had or already had children or something like that. So that was very problematic because I couldn't seem to find any pattern. Um, yeah, because, you know, it. Um, we, we can also see it in some iconographical scenes in, in the Dresden Codex mainly, but also in the Madrid Codex, where it's the goddess O, Chakchel, pouring water from this vase. Mm. And um, so that's what made me think that it could probably refer to some creative or end destructive forces um, that women possess or were mythologically assigned. Um, but I cannot really put my finger on it yet. I still have to do a lot more research, I think, as mythological topics are always very hard, in my opinion. Yes, absolutely. But um, yeah, I also hope it will reveal some um, more information about the status of women in classic Maya society, because that's also a topic that I'm interested in. And yeah, I think it's just super interesting to look at women also as um, actors and not just as wives or like secondary actors. Yeah. Absolutely. And I, I love what you mentioned about the fact that uh, even though it is a problem, the fact that you, you haven't been able to identify a pattern. And I think that's really important because when you gather all of the known examples or you do your best to find every known example and there's no pattern, that does so much for being able to um, debunk theories that maybe were built off of two examples, right? Like a line between two points is always going to be a line, but you know, a third point can, can disprove a theory. And so I think even though for you, it's been difficult and problematic, I think it's so great that you've been able to find no pattern, <laughs> at least not yet. Right. Um, because it, it helps to maybe temper some of the, the ideas that have been based on, on not as much information that you've been able to glean. So I think that's really fantastic. Yeah, I think honestly that this is the, the best result that I've gotten from my work, just to debunk some older theories. And But I haven't really been able to propose a new reading or something like that. Maybe I will be able to do that after I finish working on, I'm working on an article about it right now. But I think it's just, we have to find um, uh, like um, a phonetic, like a full phonetic complementation or something like that, that would make it so much easier. But I haven't seen one yet. So if everyone knows one, anyone knows one, please tell me. <laughs> <laughs> yes, <laughs> I think that's fantastic. And it's, I think that it really is an important thing to look at because, as you said, there aren't that many studies that look at Maya women as actors um, of their own account. And so I think it's really, it's really great that you're starting to, to pick away at these layers and to start to dive into that. 
uh, I think it's very timely work and I think it's really interesting as well. Yeah, I completely agree. It's it's super interesting, but it's also hard, like everything in my epigraphy, I guess. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah. It's part of what keeps us interested, right? There's still so many unanswered questions. Exactly. And now for my master thesis, I just wanted to add that too. I'm working on something completely different because I decided that I'm not going to have such an open question again because it was really, really stressful for my bachelor thesis. And um, so for my master thesis, I'm just going to work on um, all of the inscriptions from one side, uh, El Choro in, in Epitén, Guatemala. So yeah, I'm going to see how that will go. <laughs> yes, <laughs> I think I think focusing on one site is also it's a it's a really effective way of of gathering um, information that's that it's delimited right like within one geographic site, especially given how much we we are starting to understand about um, how each individual Maya site had its own uh, variations of myth or its own patron deities. Um, so I'm really excited to see what you find there as well. What was the name of the site again? It's El Choro. Oh, perfect. Yeah, that'll be great. Yeah. Um, so I also wanted to ask you, I know that you have another project that you're working on. Yes, um, my friend Laura Heiser and I have, um, have been doing this for, I think, a year now. And we've also gotten a lot of support from our department, which is great. And also from the um, equal rights representative. I don't know if you can say it like that from our university. Mm -hmm. And um, yeah, so we've been trying to... Um, build um, a code of conduct for especially for field work because there's already going to be a code of conduct for inside of our university just like a, a normal code of conduct but we also want to do one that is going to be applicable for when you are abroad for example or when you are on a conference or when you are just contexts that are not directly taking place inside of the university because i think it's super important that we have this and Fieldwork, archaeological fieldwork, um, ethnographical fieldwork is always a very stressful and problematic time, I think. And we have, I think we have to talk about um, why it can be problematic, why it can be dangerous in many cases, why you have to take precautions and be, of course, it doesn't always have to be problematic, but it can be, and it can be um, a dangerous time. And we as young researchers should be aware of what dangers lie in the field. I mean, this sounds very dramatic now, but yeah but but based off of stories that we've heard it's it's definitely a needed code of conduct yeah i think so too yeah but there are amazing initiatives already happening happening like the fieldwork initiative for example that are doing work on this and you can always write them and they can help you if you are in a dangerous or in a dangerous situation if you have experienced harassment in 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 any form so yeah there, there are already things but i think if we are going to do a code of conduct, especially for our department and for fieldwork that is happening associated with our department, it's going to um, put the spotlight on this problem and it's going to make more people aware that this problem exists. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And I think, yeah, that, that awareness is definitely an important foundation for being able to hopefully in one future uh, solve, solve the problem or at least make it a lot less prevalent than it is right now. So what are some of your, your next steps? What's, what's coming up uh, along the line for you in your research? You mentioned your master's thesis, which I think is fantastic. <laughs> yeah, I'm also um, a research assistant in this text database and dictionary of classic Mayan project. And they have this amazing uh, virtual research environment that I'm gonna be using. And they're doing amazing and fascinating work. Like um, Elisabeth Wagner and Christian Braga and Nicolai Gruber, all the people that work in our department. And um, I think I'm going to just get an introduction in uh, how to use this 
research environment. And then I'm just going to put all of my transcriptions, transliterations, iconographic analysis, monument description, drawings <laughs> into that database. Yeah, and I hope, I hope I'm going to get a more or less uh, full picture in the end. Yeah. But the inscriptions are quite eroded, which is super problematic, of course. But um, yeah, I hope I'm going to be able to piece the history together at least a bit. Yeah, I think that's going to be great. I, I'll, I'll make sure to add a link as well to, uh, to the Idiom Project website, because that's another fantastic resource that I think people really love. Um, so as far as the, the difficulty for reading these eroded texts, how much are you hoping to be able to use some of the new technology to, to kind of uh, identify or, or at least get a better look at some of these eroded texts? Yeah, I think that's hard to answer. I haven't gotten into that that much yet. Um, I just gave a short presentation about this in this um, uh, master thesis seminar that we have. It's just to to prepare students for the master thesis. And um, someone um, suggested that I could use this uh, tool that people have created to read petroglyphs, I think. And I'm going to try that. I don't know if it's going to work with um, carved monuments, but maybe. And of course, I've also tried to um, kind of work with um, GIMP or these image editing pro um, programs a bit to try to change the contrast and stuff like that. But I'm, I think I'm not that good at these things yet because also I'm not an archeologist. So I, I don't have any archeological training. I'm not that used to doing these things, but um, I don't know if anyone has any suggestions, tell me, yeah. that would be great. Yeah, I think that, you know, it's, it's all part of the learning process, right? I, I've definitely had to go through the same thing, of learning new technology and new software. And um, yeah, it's, it's a lot of learning. <laughs> awesome. Well, thank you so much for sharing this. I think, I think you, as well as Demetrius, you're both working on such fantastic projects. Um, and I'm so happy that we were able to talk about your research individually. So thank you so much for sharing with us, Marie. Thank you. At this point, I would love to dive into uh, a discussion about the work that you're doing online with your Instagram account, Ancient Maya History, which has been doing just phenomenal work, providing very detailed explanations of Maya history as we know it from text and images. Um, you've been doing really great at providing uh, up-to-date scholarly information that's presented in a really easy bite-sized way for readers to be able to interact and learn. Um, and you've also done a really great job, I think, dealing with some of the pushback uh, that comes from people who, um, for one reason or another, have ascribed to more pseudo-archaeological or pseudo-scientific opinions. Um, so I'd love to talk a little bit about that. We can start with maybe you can uh, explain a little bit about what inspired you to start to start the, this channel or this account um, and the, I guess the process and what, what it is that you, you hope to accomplish and achieve with it. Uh, and we can take it from there. You want to oh, start? Oh <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. So, um, well, I think I can explain from my side, at least. Uh, on Instagram, we've not just on Instagram, but on other social, social media platforms, we noticed there is, an abundance of pseudo-archaeological or like alternative archaeological accounts. And a lot of it goes unchecked, a lot of it. It's very popular. It's very lucrative from a business perspective. Uh, and it's, it's, a, it's a growing field. I mean, you, 
decades ago, it was regulated to books, but now it's accessible to everyone, and which is not necessarily a bad thing, but we noticed that there is no content, no good content that combats it and provides a good alternative or provides a good explanation as to why many of these pseudo-archaeological, um, I guess, hypotheses are wrong. And for me, it's also, uh, it's also important because I, I, I came from this side, so to say. Uh, I got into archaeology through alternative archaeology. So for a few years, I was a massive fan of uh, ancient aliens or Graham Hancock's stuff, Atlantis, Lemuria, Mu, all that stuff. I was very much into that. And after several years of <laughs> doing, doing this deep dive, I realized, um, let's just say, well, a nice way to say it will be how unreliable a lot of these things are and I discovered I was a, I was a teenager then but I, I discovered that the difference between science and pseudoscience so at least for me this kind of content is the content I wish I would have seen back then clear cuts and accessible to everyone because especially nowadays we talk about public archaeology it's so so important because I think archaeology has done not the best, hasn't done the best job in the last few decades at communicating uh, scientific uh, research, I guess, or the, what the research we do to the general public. I also think that the pseudo-archaeological pseudo explanations are just, they appeal to people because they're so simple. They basically tell you that what you see and the way you interpret it from your modern perspective is what it is. But of course, that is way too easy. You cannot just say, this to me in from my modern perspective looks like that and thus it has been like that in ancient times i mean you just cannot do that you have to look at objects in their context at the iconography and um, elements in the historical context and um, just look at all of the occurrences and then try to find um, an interpretation of these elements and i think that of course this is a super complicated process and um, this is also why we have to do so much training to be able to become scientists at some point and it's just super hard and sometimes our explanations I think just don't appear to people that much because for me for example I don't really know how to write for the general public we are trained to write in a very scientific very complicated very precise way which is good of course but it also makes it harder for other people to understand what we are doing and um I think that is what we have to work on as a scientific community and um, yeah just to to take away the need for these simple pseudoscience explanations that are going around and and just to, to build on that we've also noticed i mean this is a, an, a very old issue we see that a lot of scientific information is available online and it is available in books but a lot of times it's behind a paywall or you can't you, you won't be able to find uh, and access it in a very, I don't know, I guess, fast and easy way. And if you Google, for example, certain topics, you will get 10 results from, I guess, alternative pseudoscientific uh, websites. And that's the first, that's what people find. And if there's no alternative, then so you can't, you can't blame people. That's why it's so important, right? We talk about the importance of making things accessible to the public. And um, 
especially, you know, I think about the fact that, you know, we live in what's called the information age. I think a lot of these institutions, academic, scientific, um, and otherwise, they're having to come to terms as of the, the last few decades with the fact that information is available in so many more forms and there are so many fewer, um, I guess you could say checkpoints. Um, it's so much easier for incorrect information to be spread. And this is true in so many different fields, but I think um, as uh, scholars of ancient history, we're starting to realize really the effect that this can have on, on people. I, I'm thinking about uh, David Anderson, who was on a previous episode of the podcast, who has shared on his social media, uh, he frequently shares uh, statistics of people who do believe that the solutions provided by ancient aliens are the, you know, they, they believe that they are accurate. And the percent has been growing over the past decade. Um, even though we are making great scientific progress in the academic community, uh, because that information is much harder for the general public to access, it's, it's not as common for it to become commonplace knowledge. Um, so, yeah, I, I, I think that there's a lot that should be done. And it makes me very happy to see accounts like yours that despite the fact that you might think that you've been trained to only speak to a scientific audience, I found that the, the material has been really uh, straightforward and very accessible to people. Um, We're still figuring it out. <laughs> yes. <laughs> but I think it's all been very good. And it's also, you know, coming from, from, uh, for me, I'm a very visual person. It's also very visually appealing. And so I think that that helps, especially in an environment like Instagram, where so much is based on the visual, it gets people to stop. Um, so why don't you tell me about some of the, some of the experiences that you've had, maybe one of the best experiences and maybe one of the more challenging ones um, that you've had with the channel and how that's helped you, um, not only as scholars, but also as disseminators of scientific knowledge or academic knowledge in the public uh, the public sphere i think any any kind of content creator uh, would um, understand or sympathize with this when you get messages from people who like who say this was really interesting i didn't know this thank you so much for putting it out there this is insanely rewarding and motivating for us and on the other hand there have been some very <laughs> funny uh exchanges we've had with people and uh those are fun as well i also think it has been great that we've gotten a lot of support from our scientific community as well um for example from uh, memo Cantun, who's also shared some of our content on his um, facebook page cultura uh, y lengua maya that has been great and um it has reached so uh, many more people this way and we've gotten a lot of positive responses um on there as well so that was great and I think also we did a Yucatec Mayan post <laughs> one time in collaboration with uh, Jenner, uh, Janis Ortiz. That was also amazing. But yeah, we also get a lot of hate from time to time. And um, we've gotten into very heated arguments on Instagram. And it's always super frustrating because you cannot appeal to people on a factual basis sometimes. And it just, yeah. I think because we're also, both of us are confrontational sometimes, so we can get very heated and, uh, but we, we enjoy it, right? We do. We do, yeah. <laughs> And I, I think that it, it, it has made an impact, you know, I think about, you know, I've seen a lot of the, the, uh, reinforcement coming from from other accounts that have been reinforcing and and helping to uh 
contribute to the work that you're trying to do. And I think that it has made an impact in the sense that other scholars have started to see that there's really big pushback on this. And so in that sense, seeing other accounts, whether personal or institutional, engage in these conversations and help to defend and reinforce what you are trying to, to communicate, I think it's really doing a lot to, um, to stimulate those conversations and to get that information out there. It's uh, yeah. It's uh, we we also think that as well. Um, we hope it continues like that. We hope it um, will continue producing more content. I mean, for, for example, with the, our latest series with Pakal um, sarcophagus lids, one of the things that we saw we, we on Instagram for months we gathered lots and lots of posts that talk about this topic. All of them, one hundred percent. Uh, go along von Daniken's Dan hypothesis that it's an, an astronaut or whatever. A classic, classic uh, topic. Everyone knows this. And we noticed that there's not a single post on Instagram that provided an actual explanation as to what Mayanists believe. So we thought, okay, maybe we can uh, fill this void. Yeah, that, that post in particular has been really, really effective. I think it is, it's generated the most conversation from what I've been able to see. Um, I've also really enjoyed, I remember a few months ago, I saw some of your biographical posts where you talked about some important personages of Maya history, and I thought those were really spectacular. Um, what sort of work goes into creating one of those biographical posts and what, uh, I guess, what sources have been most helpful to you? I think for these posts, we mainly did them because we we're already working on um, student papers for um, for just for master courses, and um, so we just used the information that we'd already gathered there to 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 um, put together this biographical information. But I also really liked it because it just you can be less general and just focus on one person and what we know about this person. So I think that is just a super interesting thing to do. Um, but it was a lot of work. We were trying to gather all of the occurrences where their name uh, phrase appears and what context they appear in and what we know about their relationships with other people from the same site. And uh, yeah, then put it all together into a visually appealing post too. That's also always a lot of work. Can we notice that this is there's the yeah there's these kind of profile posts are all over instagram and i really we really like these and they usually um well it will be something like a profile or a summary of julius caesar's uh life or uh, i don't know um cortez's life by bio like a short bio and we saw there was a, a lack of any ancient mesoamerican profiles and we they're there. We know because we can read the text. It's just compiling the information and just putting it into one post. It's it's a fairly simple uh, process, and people are interested in it. Reading those posts was seeing and realizing oh my gosh, we're actually seeing the biography of a person. We're not just talking about the Maya as like this monolithic cultural idea, but we're talking about individual people. And I think that's something that's really been missing from uh, Mesoamerican, but mostly Maya uh, sources is that, you know, we, we have biographies of, you know, uh, Multiprosoma and, you know, other Aztec empire emperors uh, because we have those colonial sources. And I think that now that epigraphy and decipherment is advancing so much more, even though we still, you know, we're dealing with a deeper time depth, uh, 
and we're dealing with still only monumental inscriptions as far as we've been able to gather, we still have information where we can talk a little bit about who this person was, when they began their rule, maybe some important historical uh, uh, events that happened during their their lifetime and their rule, and of course their death dates. And so I really love that you've been able to pull out these biographical uh, analyses or summaries and really bring these people to life in a way that I think obviously they deserve and that I think other people really resonate with. Yes, it's answering the question of what kind of person were, they? I mean, we can't answer this question, but it makes you think what kind of person was this? Why did they do what they were doing? And yeah, this, um, doesn't really get out that much so we thought yeah let's go ahead and yeah. present it i think these small biographical posts kind of makes it easier for people to understand um understand um epigraphy and understand it on a more concrete basis because we can say that this is the information that we can gather about one person and it makes people realize that of course there was these people were alive, this is what their life was like, and it makes it way less abstract, I think, to, to be able to, to think about how people lived in classic Maya society. Of course, it's only about noble people, but still, I mean, it's just super fascinating that all the things that we can gather about them in the hieroglyphic text and about the, the calendar information that we have, which is always super fascinating too. It also gives us an idea, at least the general public, an idea of how much Maya hieroglyphic sources can tell us this is, you know, exactly, or at least according to the text, exactly when this person was born, who they married, who their family was, who their en enemies were. We can, sometimes we can uh, deduce strategies that were used or alliances, and, and that is just so fascinating. <laughs> It really is. It's one of my favorite aspects about about studying the ancient world, right, is being able to to get this information about individual people who, you know, have, have been lost to to history um, or at least sometimes just lost to, to our uh, Western history. Right. Um, but being able to recover this information about these people in and then disseminate it to the public. I think that's one of these one of these really great advantages that we have as scholars that. Uh, are we're starting we're starting to disseminate this information uh, more fully to the public and there there are more more academic journals that are being made uh, open access so that people can can read uh, without having to go past the paywall and I think that 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 for me is one of the most important things about accounts like yours is that you you have access to the to the research that is still behind the paywalls and you can provide these summaries that put them then into the public sphere. People can research for themselves. People can understand a little bit about things that they would have had to pay a lot of money to find out otherwise. And I think that it's, it's just really great work and it's really important work. And I'm really, it just really makes me happy to see accounts like yours that are doing it. And we hope to do more of those uh, personal profiles. I think these are some of our favorites kind of posts to make. We're also always open for suggestions. So if anybody yeah. has a topic that they want to know more about, I mean, we, we're Absolutely. doing this so that people get interested in epigraphy and that so that they understand what we're doing and just appreciate how beautiful uh, my epigraphy is and my glyphs in general and how just how amazing it is. So yeah, we're always open to to suggestions for other posts and we, we hope to be able to provide more content like this in the future. 
Absolutely. Thank you so much. And thank you again for taking the time to sit and talk with me and to share about all of the things that you've been working on and learning. I look forward to seeing you again in more meetings and conferences in the future. Thank you for having us. Thank you for giving us the platform. We really appreciate this. We never yeah, really, thought we'd thank be... you so much. Yeah. Yeah, we no, it's a pleasure to podcast. <laughs> yeah, no, it's a pleasure and an honor for me. And I'm really glad that we've been able to, to sit and chat. Thank you very much again. Thank you. You're, you're very welcome. Demetrius and Marie continue to make fantastic Instagram posts talking all about the ancient Maya history and the people involved. For more information about how to access their Instagram page and about the text database and dictionary of classic Mayan project, check out the webpage for this podcast episode at MesoamericanStudiesOnline.com. Thanks, and we'll see you in the next episode.